Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Hang on a second. Perception. You're saying it was the perception there are 13 Democrats on the special counsel probe, including one who went to what he hoped was a victory party. That's a perception problem, too. They weren't kicked off. You were. Why were you kicked off? Mr. Gowdy, I cannot speak to Special Counsel Mueller. How long did you talk to him? These reasons why he did or did. How long did you talk to him when he let you go? Uh, he didn't answer the question. will be afforded the opportunity. My recollection is it was a short meeting somewhere between 15 to 30 minutes, probably around 15 minutes. And your testimony is Bob Mueller did not kick you off because of the content of your text. He kicked you off because of some appearance that he was worried about. My testimony, what you asked and what I responded to was that he kicked me off because of my bias. I'm stating to you it is not my understanding that he kicked me off because of any bias, that it was done based on the appearance. If you want to represent what you said accurately, I'm happy to answer that question, but I don't appreciate what was originally said being changed. I don't give a damn what you appreciate, Agent Strzok. I don't appreciate having an FBI agent with an unprecedented level of animus working on two major investigations during 2016. Wow. That was a heavily charged interchange between Representative Trey Gowdy and FBI agent extraordinaire, Mr. Superguy, uh, Peter Strzok. He decided to appear before the committee and present himself this morning. And he had a prepared statement. You could tell he was waiting on an opportunity to kind of let it fly. And he did. And he was able to get um, a, a substantial amount of, of, you know, kind of fluffing and hugging from the Democrats. But overall, I don't think he acquitted himself well because his assertions don't Hold water. Welcome to the show, everybody. Stacy Washington, host of Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thanks for being with us today. Great show planned for you today. Really got a lot going on. Um, as you heard, Peter Strzok appeared before the committee. He says he appeared of his own volition. They say that he was served in a, a, a subpoena and it was delivered to him and, and received by him. And therefore, he was there under subpoena. Uh, there were a lot of really interesting moments in the hearing. And we're going to get into that. We also have Scott Whitlock, associate editor for, editor for Newsbusters, coming on in hour one. And in an hour two, we have Jason Piccolo, U.S. border agent. Um, he also is he's worked for ICE. He is an expert in this area. And we're going to talk about a case that admittedly, I'm going to give you a warning before it comes on so that you know, um, this is some really uh, difficult content for the radio. If you have children around or anything like that, you might want to um, usher them out or, or govern yourself accordingly. And that'll be an hour two where we discuss this case. And it is not that it's a, a one-off. It's an example of what is happening around the country. And it's only being covered by local news because the left doesn't want anything to stand in the way of their open borders agenda. So we're going to get into that. That's hour two. Right now, I just I can't help but feel as if in some of these moments, uh, Peter Strzok definitely gave as good as he got. But he also tried to couch everything that he was doing, all of his activities. And admittedly, he has an amazing career record behind him up to this point. And so, you know, you have to give him some credit for that. But then by the same token, you kind of look at the way he talked, the way that he texted, the things that he said, the kind of arrogance that he displayed. And it, it makes you wary of everything else that he's saying. So we want to give him credit for his service. We want to uh, acknowledge the fact that he was up until this point, uh, according to all counts, an exemplary agent. But then 
Donald Trump came on the scene. And it's as if all of that great prior service and that activity kind of went by the wayside for him. And he was singular, single minded in trying to stop President Trump from becoming a reality. And maybe it's because we, we know this is true. The Bible tells us that when we engage in sin, especially sexual sin, which is sin that goes against the temple of the Holy Spirit, it dampens our wisdom. So people who are involved in extramarital affairs actually lose some of their natural wisdom, some of the wisdom that they've earned, because that sin blocks good decision making. And so you've got Peter Strzok, you know, engaged in this workplace relationship with Lisa Page, and their communications really reflected that. Like he was her savior. He was riding in to protect her from a president, Donald Trump, and also the nation by extension. He denies all of that now. But it's clear when you read the text messages that that's what it was. Now, he makes a good point during the testimony that, you know, these are private messages that were never intended for public consumption. And none of us want our private text messages to be, you know, put forward for public consumption. But it doesn't change the fact that he was working on something that was for public consumption. And his work as an FBI agent is tinged by the knowledge that he was so single minded in his support for Hillary Clinton and at the same time, his obsession with stopping Donald Trump from becoming president. So he goes into a bit of an explanation in this next clip. He talks about how his anti-Trump text messages express his deep patriotism, which I'm unable to believe, but you judge for yourself. It's number four. I testify today with significant regret, recognizing that my texts have created confusion and caused pain for people I love. Certain private messages of mine have provided ammunition for misguided attacks against the FBI, an institution that I love deeply and have served proudly for over 20 years. I'm eager to answer your questions, but let me first address those much-discussed texts. Like many people, I had and expressed personal political opinions during an extraordinary presidential election. Many contained expressions of concern for the security of our country, Opinions that were not always expressed in terms I'm proud of. But having worked in national security for two decades and proudly served in the U.S. Army, those opinions were expressed out of deep patriotism and an unyielding belief in our great American democracy. At times, my criticism was blunt, but despite how it's been characterized, it was not limited to one person or to one party. I criticized various countries and politicians, including Secretary Clinton, Senator Sanders, then-candidate Trump, and others. But let me be clear, unequivocally and under oath, not once in my 26 years of defending our nation did my personal opinions impact any official action I took. Hmm. So does that smell pass the smell test for you? Um... I mean, I think we all have different opinions about different things. And any person who has, you know, a decent amount of self-control can separate their personal beliefs from the work that they have to do. And it depends on really greatly how integral your work is to your lifestyle, whether or not you went into it knowing that that's what you'd have to do. So clearly he knew at any point during his career at the FBI that there could be a president that he wouldn't have supported, that a president that he wasn't really excited about could be in command of the country and the government, and he would indirectly answer to that person. So 
That's a given. We can accept that. But when you read the text messages, we will stop him. I will stop him. Um, the things he said about Trump voters, he could smell them when he went into Southern, uh, Southern Virginia. And that's really, he did explain that during the hearing that there's a bit of a competition between Southern Virginia and Northern Virginia. And there are two very different people groups. The rural areas of Virginia are very red politically, very Christian, um, much more uh, almost Midwestern in their orientation. And the area that surrounds the uh, Washington, D.C. area is one of the wealthiest areas in the country. It is highly concentrated with very well-educated career service uh, individuals who work for the federal government. And so you you don't just have FBI agents. You have people who work for every branch of the government who live there because they need close proximity to Washington, D.C. and the surrounding areas where the majority of our government is located. And so they travel to and from their work areas there. The price of houses there is it's astronomical. They have good school districts. They also have a lot of private schools. And their political orientation tends to be very blue. They're very hard left. And that is, what, what, what are we to do about that? Nothing. But the competition that he described in his explanation um, doesn't account for that level of animus. It's one thing to say, you know, I traveled out there and I could see the Trump support or the Trump support was evident, but I went to the Walmart and I could smell the Trump supporters. He tries to explain it, but he just doesn't come off as being honest. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true that the, the way to describe people that you are simply in competition with is that you can smell them. It, it's one thing to say, you know, it was the Trump support was evident. It was obvious I, I was traveling into Trump country or I was in the heart of Trump country. I, w- I boarded the Trump train. There's so many different ways to describe it. And obviously, I can't put words in the man's mouth. I don't really know what he what, what his normal vernacular is. But clearly, he's a well-educated guy. He's a career service FBI agent. Um, apparently, he's so fantastic that they did like a movie that was based on some of his exploits and busting up crime rings and things. So, you know, the, how he would term it Really, it's it's a matter of conjecture. But when you read what he said, you get the feeling that it's not just a normal competition that he was expressing. He has true animus for people who live outside of the beltway and the, you know, the the inner ring of power. And so much so that he looks down on them. He describes them in a way that you would describe, like if you've ever been to a barn, if you've ever ridden horses, you know that when you enter the area where the horses are stored or where their their pasture, where they spend most of their time, the smell is distinctly different because these are large beasts. And, you know, obviously they're doing what large beasts do outdoors. That smell is evident. He likened human beings who vote in, in the opposite of him in that same way. That doesn't sound like healthy competition. It sounds like disdain and condescension and a real disaffected type of connection with what he deems to be people who are less than, than himself. Uh, so he goes into that a little bit. He, he's, he's Trey Gowdy really launched all, all efforts. He let the Patriot missiles fly and really went into Peter Strzok. He cut him off a little bit. Um, one of his questions sent the entire committee into disarray where they just argued and bickered like a bunch of spider monkeys for a while. It was so embarrassing and ridiculous to watch the Democrats try to impede the line of questioning by the chair, Goodlot, 
But they were successful in doing so and derailing the uh, course of events for about, I'd say, almost 15 minutes. Um, so here's Trey Gowdy grilling Peter Strzok about his text messages in number eight. And, there, and someone may ask you that question, Agent Strzok, but I didn't. I asked you how many people you interviewed before you wrote it. If you want to get into context, let one of my other colleagues do that with you. Here's what I want to know. Who's the he and he's not? He is then candidate Trump. So when you said, no, Donald Trump's not, in, in connection with the question, going to become president, what's the it? Chairman we'll Gotti. stop it. Chairman Gotti, that text needs to be taken in the context I, I'm, of I'm you asking, interested. look, if you want to have a debate over a two-letter word, we're going to have to do that some other time. What and who did you mean by it? Mr. Gowdy, as I've stated, that text was written late at night in shorthand. I don't care when it was written. About. I don't care it's whether it was longhand, cursive. I don't care about any of that. I want to know what it meant, Agent Strzok. It would be his candidacy for the presidency. And my sense that the American yeah, population would not vote him into office. Right, right. Well, we hadn't gotten to the will yet. Well, I'm your, trying to, I'm trying to cut through the chase and explain the, the text. The I, will I is it. the American people. Is that right? That's your testimony. The will stop it. You were speaking on behalf of the American people. Is that correct? Mr. Gowdy, what my testimony is and what I said during extensive asking of this question during my prior interview is I don't recall writing that text. What Are you denying you, writing the text? What I can tell you is that text in no way suggested that I or the FBI would take any action to influence the candidacy a of Agent Strzok, that, that is a fantastic answer to a question nobody asked. Yeah, Mr. Gowdy, you asked what I to you is Chairman, the, the wheel. Is going to be permitted to answer the question posed? And at that point, it descended into chaos where you, you just had so many of them peppering the chair with questions. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was really hard to sit through. I, my blood started to boil because I just thought, you know, not only is this being broadcast across the world and it's clear that the Democrats, Peter Strzok could have said, you know, I, I smashed voodoo dolls every night at home to prevent Donald Trump from becoming president. And the Democrats would have clapped and slammed their hands on the table and said, here, here, he's a great American because the Trump derangement syndrome is that strong. The concern that he actually colluded with the Russians is the pretext by which all of this really illegal behavior has gone on. And I don't think the American people were fooled by Peter Strzok's testimony today. I know I wasn't. All right, when we get back, we're going to have more for you. You just keep it right there. And we'll be right back here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. What if I told you that you could clean your family's laundry and help reach the next generation at the same time? That opportunity is here through a company called Redeem Clean. Every time you use Redeem Clean products, you help support the ministry of the American Family Association. In addition to your regular AFA giving, Redeem Clean laundry detergent allows you to increase your support of AFA just by continuing to wash your family's clothes. Redeem Clean products work as well as or better than other products on the market. 
They're environmentally safe, biodegradable, and they're made in the USA. And they were developed exclusively for the support of the American Family Association. For clean laundry and support of a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. Learn more, find options, and order Redeem Clean products at afastore.net. That's afastore.net. Hi, I'm Prof. Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Have you ever thought about the importance of rivers? Many of our towns and cities were built along the banks of rivers. Rivers take us places. There are fish in the river. We use its water to irrigate our fields. We harness the power of the flowing water to give us electricity. Yes, there is life in the river. A relationship with God is much like a river. I love the imagery in Psalm chapter 46, verses 4 through 7. Listen to these wonderful words. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And then verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. That's a powerful picture. Verse 4 tells us that we bring joy to God's heart as part of the river. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We bring joy to God's heart as part of God's river. Secondly, the river's destination is the presence of God. We're caught up with this flow, this life-giving experience that we have. We're going someplace. We're going into his presence. Then God himself is in the water. Verse 7 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. It's not just that he gives us plentiful resources that are found in his river, but God himself is right there in the water. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. If you have a relationship with Christ and you are in the river and God is taking you to his presence, but along the way, he wants to use you to give life to others. You've been listening to Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and heard on the weekly program, Living a Legacy. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. It does appear that Lisa Page apparently has something to hide. Uh, she has been in complete defiance of cooperation with the House Judiciary Committee and the Oversight and Government Reform Committee for seven months now, dating back to the first letter we wrote to the Department of Justice in December of last year asking for her appearance. There have been two subsequent letters and two subpoenas issued for her appearance, and she has defied all of that. Now, when she says that uh, she has not had ample time to prepare, that is belied by those facts. In addition, our attorneys have had communications with her attorney for nearly a month now about this appearance, uh, and her attorney uh, agreed to accept service of the subpoena and then turned around and immediately tried to reject it. So that's why we sent the marshals to her house to mm -hmm. uh, serve the subpoena. They had to go back three times before they finally were able to reach her and serve the subpoena on her. So this is a very serious matter. This subpoena yeah. is, is still in effect. Uh, I think it's very important for her to understand that and she should comply with it and she should comply with it now before she's held in contempt of Congress, which could happen as soon as Friday. 
uh, kind of like weird procedural votes. What's interesting about it is that it's uh, you get a real feeling for the body. You think of them sitting there together, all formal and, you know, but really there's a lot of talking going on. There are aides rushing in and out. And what Chairman Goodlot is describing actually happened today where they had to take a recess from receiving an, a testimony from Strzok and asking him questions to have some procedural votes because the Democrats were constantly bringing up points of order and using Robert's rules of order to subvert the process. And it's it's not that they're doing that because they really need a point of order. It's because they don't like the line of questioning and they wanted to insulate Peter Strzok from as much as they could to assist him in keeping secret things that really should be made known. Now, understandably, and I get this, I, I believe, Good, clear-thinking Americans all see this process and they understand that the investigation into collusion uh, and Russia and obstruction of justice and all of that into the Trump campaign and, and President Trump, those investigations are ongoing and therefore things that pertain to them will not be able to be discussed in the hearing. But questions about tertiary aspects of it, things that the committee members already know, for Peter Strzok to refuse to answer those, it kind of... It, it goes to his credibility. And he danced around and kind of tiptoed into the water in answering those questions when they were posed by Democrats. But when they were posed by Republicans, he just went back to his form answer. I can't answer that on advice of FBI counsel, which they actually prohibited him. They actually ordered him not to answer any questions pertaining to the investigation. But they didn't have a problem when he was answering them from Democrats because they supported the assertion that he is just this upstanding, um, impartial individual whose private feelings turn on around 5.30, 6 o'clock when he gets out of his FBI vehicle and into his private vehicle and drives, you know, towards his home. Uh, but during the day when he's in his FBI vehicle and he's wearing his suit and he's wearing his badge and, you know, he's uh, executing the duties of an agent, his feelings don't ever come into play. It's like they're magically erased or cordoned off into a separate area that's even apart from his physical person. And the feelings only return when he's off duty. And that's when he goes wild with the text messages and he gets to talking about how people smell because of their political beliefs. You know, does that fly? Do you believe that? I don't. I, I, I don't buy it. I I don't buy it if you look at it in the context of the way that they ran the Clinton investigation, exonerating her before they'd even interviewed her, that they interviewed her at her home but didn't put her under oath. They didn't bring her in and interview her as they would any other suspect. They interviewed her at her house and they allowed others to be present who weren't her actual attorneys. And they said it's a crime to lie to an FBI agent, but they could have taken it that step forward, that that extra layer of accountability and respectability that would have been added by simply placing her under oath so that it would be clear to everyone that she would be jeopardizing her own, uh, you know, innocence by not being completely forthcoming. But if you've already decided she's not guilty and she's not going to be prosecuted, and if James Comey has already decided that he's not even going to leave that up to Loretta Lynch because she has tainted her credibility by meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac, which we were told was an accident. But now we come to find out they coordinated that. Because remember, I told you at the time, there's no way those two aircraft, there's a billion flights a year. How did two aircraft, two private planes at that, land at the same section of the airport and end up at the same hangar with their noses pointed in the same direction towards each other, where the occupants of the planes can deplane and replane to meet on his jet, which obviously 
you can't discuss classified information on his jet. And also, even though he's the former president, he lacks clearance to discuss classified things. Uh, she's Loretta Lynch. Uh, you know, she, at the time, she was the uh, attorney general of the United States. So if they were only talking about grandkids, of which coincidentally she has none, um, you know, why do they even need to see each other? Why not just in passing stop and shake hands and say, hey, how are the grandkids? Because that's not what they were talking about. You know that. I know that. You know, come on. This, this is where we are, right? So back to uh, Chairman Goodlatte. He talks about the chain of events in Lisa Page's letter. So remember yesterday we talked about how Lisa Page would have to have her attorney. I said yesterday attorneys, but apparently she has one attorney. And that person would review all of the documents. They would need all this time to create interrogatories, which is uh, you know sometimes what they're called, which are the here's what they might ask you. Here's what you could answer. And attorneys are very good at this. This is a part of what they do to prepare clients for trial. And so they're able to analyze, look, this is what these, this is the subject matter of all of these items. And the possible lines of questionings are this, this, and this. And these are the possible answers that you could give that are truthful and honest and within the scope of what, what happened. They interview their client, they ask them the questions, they create the answers, they create alternative answers, and then they prep the client some more. The problem is she's had months and months and months to get that done. And they did give her information. Chairman Goodlatte actually disputes what Lisa Page's letter to uh, to the the committee saying that she couldn't appear. He disputes her assertions in that letter. It's number seven. I spoke with the general counsel of the FBI earlier this morning, Dana Bente. Uh, he says they want her to testify. They reached out to her, in fact, when she says the documents weren't made available. They reached out to her to let her know, hey, you've got a deposition. Don't you want to come in and examine documents? So finally, after that was done, mm-hmm. she went down there at 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, did examine documents uh, for a few hours. There was a glitch, a computer glitch, with regard to classified documents, plus the fact that her classified status, her security status Mm -hmm. had to be reinstated so she could examine classified materials. That was done. That was done. And later that evening, the computer glitch was solved. And we know that because we know other witnesses went in and examined classified materials. So uh, we think that is simply an excuse for not appearing. We think it's inexplicable. And we think she needs to comply with this subpoena and she needs to do it immediately. So there are a number of things here. First of all, they even gave her the opportunity to show up today where she would be she would have been seated in the hearing room, you know, within almost ar- throwing distance, arms distance, you know, toss a pencil to him. Her former lover, Peter Strzok, she opted not to do that as well. Now, he showed up. He clearly was prepared. He didn't want to show up to their private hearing. He was subpoenaed for that. He showed up. He agreed to come to this hearing. And then, of course, they issued the subpoena because they weren't sure if he, you know, what, what is his answer? Um, and then he, he said, well, I already agreed, but he received the subpoena as well. And he showed up today. The question is, where do we, where do we, where is our society? Where's our, where, where are we as a society when we have our, basically as a public servant, And so is she. Now, I know she no longer works for the FBI, but public servant is what she was. And she's a citizen of the United States, meaning she is subject to subpoena by Congress. Where are we when people basically decide, I'm just I'm just not doing that. I'm just not showing up for a congressional subpoena. Here's my letter that says why. 
Now, they're threatening to find her in contempt of Congress. That's true. And it could possibly, um, you know, result in I, I, I'm not even sure what happens when you're in contempt of Congress. If you're uh, in the audience, please call in. Let's let's discuss it. 866-963-2037. If you know what happens when you defy a congressional subpoena, I, I, I guess the reason I don't know is because it never occurred to me that anyone would feel so led to do so, like so empowered that they didn't need to show up. Um, I just, I just find it really disturbing. It's upsetting. It's disturbing. It's, it's not okay that what we have going on now is completely outside of the realm of normalcy. And we literally have two different thought processes on it. And in Congress, you have the Democrats who feel by any means necessary, take Trump down. And then you have the Republicans who seem that, they seem like they're, yes, you've got Trey Gowdy, you've got Jim Jordan. They're attacking this thing, you know, with, they've got their claws bared. But it's not, I don't feel like they're using everything at their disposal. Now, maybe they are. Maybe they are using everything at their disposal, and this is the most that they can do is have these hearings and threaten to hold people in contempt of Congress. But is it that that's going to get us where we need to be? Are, are we going to find that these proceedings lead to justice for the American people because we're owed anyone who works in the government, who works for, you know, they're earning tax dollars, money that we all contribute to. We work hard and they take the money out before we get it and send it off to the federal government and they pay all of these 22 million, 24 million uh, federal employees. And so we're the, we're the constituents here and we are owed some type of, explanation and some justice on the behaviors that we've seen on display here. Every time someone just gets away with this stuff with no ramifications, it places us in a position where the law becomes split. There's one law for everyone else. And then there's basically no law for those who are elected over us, hired over us. Instead of the consent of the governed, you have these individuals kind of operating and doing whatever they feel is best and we're paying them to do it yet when it's time for them to answer yeah nah they don't feel like they need to do anything so a few more details on um there's a a letter that's come out that was issued by chairman goodlatte and uh trey gowdy they sent the letter to lisa page's attorney in the letter, there are three options for, uh, for, for her to undertake. She can appear tomorrow with Peter Strzok, which that was already scheduled. She did not do that. She did not show up for that today. She can present herself for deposition on Friday the 13th, which is tomorrow. She can do both one and two. Those are the only options that the, uh, the, the House Judiciary Committee chairman and uh, House Oversight and Government Reform Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy, Goodlatte and Gowdy, those are the only two options they've offered to her. They required her to come before the committee to answer questions or face contempt proceedings. Now, Lisa Page was legal counsel, just to kind of, we, just to refresh our memories. What did she do? How was she involved in this? Lisa Page was the, uh, she was a legal counsel to former FBI Director Andrew McCabe, She's a key witness to the committee's joint investigation into decisions made by the Justice Department, and they've 
subpoenaed her. They wanted her to appear yesterday. She refused to appear. Now, the letter they sent over um, includes a little bit of language that was pretty interesting. Interviewing your client, Lisa Page, is an important part of this investigation. After months of trying to secure her appearance, the committee scheduled her for deposition on July 11, 2018. Despite proper service of your client with a subpoena directing her to appear, she did not. The Judiciary Committee intends to initiate contempt proceedings on Friday, July the 13th, 2018, at 10.30 a.m. So they're pretty serious about moving forward with, you know, efforts to force her in- into their presence. We are also aware of committee efforts to schedule your client's appearance for over six months now. So they offer to stay the contempt proceedings, provided Lisa Page voluntarily appears on July the 12th at 10 a.m., while your client would still be deposed at some point, appearance at the hearing scheduled for Thursday, July 12th at 10 a.m. would negate the need for immediate contempt proceedings. So she's she's passed that deadline as well because she didn't show up today. I I find it fascinating that she's doing this. You have to kind of wonder. So if that's the case, if she's facing contempt of Congress proceedings, um, at what point does she kind of. Basically, she's showing her hand. She's guilty of something. She's an attorney herself. She has an attorney. They are tossing out a bunch of excuses as to why she can't appear. And so here are a few of those. As we go out of this segment, I want you to hear some of the excuses that she has provided, which have been immediately refuted by Judiciary Chairman Bob Goodlatte. So her first excuse is that she was not provided sufficient notice to prepare for the deposition, he counters that by saying on December 19, 2017, Chairman Goodlatte and Gowdy sent a letter to the Justice Department requesting to interview her. That was seven months ago. Another letter was sent in April. Committee staff have been in direct contact with her attorney since June of 2018, and she and her attorney have refused to commit to a date for the interview. Her next excuse, the committees will be asking Lisa Page about materials she has not yet reviewed. The reality, many of the documents that she would be asked about are documents that she created. Additionally, these very same materials were provided to Ms. Page during her interview with the Inspector General. Excuse, the scope of the interview was too broad for her and should have been narrowed. Reality, according to Goodlatte and Gowdy, the scope covers Mrs. Page's involvement in the matters pertaining to the committee's investigation into decisions made by the Justice Department and FBI in 2016 and her role related to those decisions. This was clearly communicated to Ms. Page. She really doesn't have a leg to stand on here. And I get it. She doesn't want to be there. But it looks like they're intent on getting her there. To me, it's of the utmost importance that they do so. Otherwise, what is to stop other people from defying congressional subpoenas? Either you've got to show up or you don't. What does subpoena mean otherwise? All right, that's this segment. We'll be back with our first guest of the first hour of the show, Scott Whitlock. Stay right there. Stacey on the right. This is Uncommon Moments. Here's former Super Bowl winning NFL coach Tony Dungy and his wife Lauren sharing from their book Uncommon Marriage. As a newly married couple, Tony and I had many opportunities to nurture children. Our church, Bethany Baptist, embraced the concept 
that every child should be cared for by the church. Bethany had programs that reached out to the community, such as Vacation Bible School and fun programs for young people. Many of our friends at church had kids, so whether we were going to their houses or they were coming over to ours, we were always around children. Sometimes we'd even invite kids to spend a weekend with us so their parents could get away. We knew we would have children of our own eventually. Little did we know what God had in store for us. Tony and Lauren Dungy, authors of Uncommon Marriage. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. We need you to call your senators today. Tell them to put an end to the liberals' filibuster, switch to a majority vote, and defund Planned Parenthood. Your call will make a difference. Call the Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121 or go to afaaction.net. Again, call 202-224-3121 and tell your senators to switch to a majority vote and defund Planned Parenthood. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fool because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. As if college students aren't already totally triggered, George Washington University hosted a workshop for students and faculty on the unmerited perks and favors showered upon white Christians, which are unavailable to everyone else. The Multicultural Student Services Center wants to teach minority students they are dupes. Meaningless buzzwords like ally, unconscious bias, and microaggression were employed for this purpose. The Bible is very clear that we are indeed privileged to be the beneficiaries of Jesus Christ's great work on the cross. We are also called to suffer with him, which is a privilege. Christianity is open to everyone, period. Wouldn't it be great if GWU got out of the business of oppressor talk and back to teaching higher ed? Because that is what the parents of those students are paying tuition for. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Welcome back to the program. UrbanFamilyTalk.com is the website where you can register for our marriage and family conference. We'd love to see you in Tupelo, August 17th and 18th. Also, you can go to AFR.net and check out the great content over there. And uh, right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Scott Whitlock, frequent guest of the program. He's associate editor for Newsbusters. Scott, thanks for joining in today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's talk about this. It's like the whole world has gone mad. Donald Trump issues a couple of sternly worded comments about NATO's contribution levels and the member states not really picking up their end of the bargain. And everybody in America says it's the end of NATO. Right. Yeah. And particularly on ABC, uh, they, they kind of freaked out opening their morning show, Good Morning America, saying that Trump was blowing up NATO, that he was taking these problems to a new level, and et cetera. And I, I think it's the, the real hypocrisy here is that 
when Barack Obama was president, they never seemed to question his foreign policy. They never uh, called into question any decisions he would make on issues like the Iran nuclear deal and whether that was wise or whether we were going to get much out of it. Uh, but everything with Trump, when he's clearly just negotiating, uh, you know, they turn into the end-of-the-world apocalyptic type stuff. <laughs> So uh, I'm just I'm giggling because, Scott, do you remember the images are seared into my mind, um, partially because I'm a veteran and I remember all of the other presidents, you know, leading up to President Obama, their personas when they were on foreign soil was always very erect, very commanding. Uh, It didn't matter how tall they were or, or what their, you know, what their general appearance was. It was always a commanding presence that was presented on behalf of the United States. And our, journal, our generals are like that. Our military leaders are like that. And so when President Obama was inaugurated and he began to go around the, the, around the world and really apologize for America, and he was bowing and stooping and uh, just really it was, it was so disconcerting to see. And I'd turn on the news and there'd be nothing like the, no no acknowledgement that it was a complete about face that that presidents before him had never presented themselves in this way uh, that America has never lost an international world war and therefore we don't have to bow to anyone I mean it's just it was just kind of flabbergasting and then you come you know fast forward to today we got Donald Trump an alpha male admittedly um, and that has not worked to his benefit. Uh, you know, historically speaking for him, his public life has not always been benefited by his alpha male status, but that is what it is. And he goes out and he uses every opportunity to address the concerns of Americans. We're taxpaying Americans who are footing the bill for the protection of all of these countries in Europe. And they seem not to care that they're doing things that we don't like. And our American media seems really complicit in um dumbing down the fact that Trump's actually speaking what a lot of Americans believe and say themselves. Well, I think they they, yeah, they definitely don't seem to think uh, the media that he's representing um, any kind of political base, when clearly this is the stuff he was saying when he got elected, and, and this this got him um, uh, elected. But I, I also want to go back to your, your early com- earlier comparison of Obama. That's absolutely true, because uh, it was very much that the, the media would cover for Obama on things like this. Uh, I don't know if you remember his quote when he was asked about if he believed in American exceptionalism, and he said, oh, sure, just like the, you know, the British believe in British exceptionalism and the, the Belgians and so on, which is essentially his way of saying no. And, yeah, that, that type of thing, they, they did not want to cover that. They didn't want to cover the bowing and any of these other things that uh, a good chunk of Americans in this country might not like, because that's what ABC, NBC, and CBS would often do, is just cover for the, uh, the previous president. Yeah, and so, Scott, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. I've been outside of this country. I grew up in Germany. I've been outside of this country to many, many other nations, and other nations do not think of themselves as exceptional. I mean, I've been to Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Arabian people do not believe they are exceptional. They believe that their royal family that rules over them is exceptional because they are royal. Britons don't believe that they are exceptional. They they have a certain kind of we're a royal people. You know, they're a unique people. Um, right. They're a free people. They've never been enslaved. You know, they 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 have they have definitely have some points of of you know feeling that they're special and unique. 
but exceptional is not a term that Brits would use to describe Britons. It's just not. Their empire was so large at one point, it encompassed all kinds of different people, and Brits didn't feel the entire empire was exceptional. They felt that the people who were actually what they call legitimate Brits, you know, people who are actually British, that they were pretty special for conquering everybody else. But exceptionalism is a uniquely American concept. And Barack Obama seemed to be the first president we'd ever had who didn't get that. And I think Donald Trump gets it. And he's really operating from a position of strength because we do kind of hold all the cards at NATO, don't we? Right. And I mean, I think that's a good point. And I think part of the the, the journalists don't get that because they reflect, uh, they would see that Obama comment and just kind of nod their heads about that. And I think that's also sort of, we have this liberal bias from the press, but there's, in addition to the bias, kind of a geographical bias in the sense that a lot of these uh, big media outlets, New York Times, ABC, NBC, they're located in D.C. and New York, and that's about it. So they represent that kind of mentality of a New York, D.C., L.A., uh, rather than uh, representing the whole of the United States. So they would see that comment by Obama and really just not see anything objectionable about it. So where do we go from here as, as Americans who truly believe we are exceptional and that we, we want our children to believe that? How do we kind of counter this leftist narrative? Because I, I believe it's kind of seeped into the public schools, and a lot of Americans have their kids in public schools, and they're working and they're you know doing laundry and cooking dinner and paying mortgages and haven't really considered whether or not their children are being taught that, um, or that they're being taught that America is not only not exceptional but is horrible because of you know slavery or you know whatever else right. it is that that ever went wrong in our country. Like no other country ever had anything wrong in their history. I mean, it's so. It's such a double standard to only hold America responsible for every bit of our history and every other country gets a pass. But what do we how do we approach that as as people who truly do believe that this is an exceptional place full of exceptional people? And we know it's true because everybody's fighting like the Dickens to get in here by hook or by crook. Right. Right. Well, I I think there's two answers on a kind of micro level. My wife and I actually over the 4th of July went to Williamsburg and we got to hear the Declaration of Independence being read. And that's really kind of an inspiring experience. And I think parents need to take uh, the history of this country and uh, the positive aspects and the the greatness of living in America um, and impart that on, you know, onto their children themselves, because like you said, unfortunately, in schools, they're not really getting it, and they're certainly not really getting it in the media. And and I would say the second part of that answer is kind of in the, the larger macro sense, the, the, the impact of the media is fortunately is lessening in the sense that less and less people are kind of wedded to getting their information from the New York, New York Times, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And we can see that partly just because of in the last uh, 20 years or so, certainly in the uh, late 90s and 2000s, with the explosion of the Internet, alternative uh, media, talk radio, uh, Fox News, whatever you, uh, all these different outlets, they are, uh, Americans just have more and more opportunity to get their media from other sources and sources that aren't going to give them kind of the same old agenda. So I think that is the positive side. There's the media is as bad as uh, as they've ever been, but people have more choices and more opportunity. And I think that's where part of this sort of rage 
that we see from the media getting even more extreme comes from because they don't like the fact that we have so many more opportunities to get our media from different places. I agree. And you guys track it so well at Newsbusters. I mean, you want to know how many minutes they spent talking about this garbage story or that garbage story? Go to Newsbusters and you'll see the breakdown because you guys have people who their job is just to watch TV and track this stuff. And we're really grateful for that because otherwise, how would we know? It it appears biased. You feel like something's not quite right. right. But when I read the breakdowns on Newsbusters, I, sometimes I'm like, wow. That's even worse than I thought. I thought they were talking about 24-7, but they literally were. Like, you know, every 60-minute right. segment, they they had 48 minutes of it was about Donald Trump being, you know, a Russian agent, which is so ludicrous. But people are believing it because they have the the brainwashing factor. So let's let's talk a little bit more about this. this um, it's this whole idea that if you believe America is exceptional, flaws and all, warts and all, then you're going to operate differently than if you don't. When you're out on the foreign policy front, you're, it's not that American exceptionalism precludes other nations from being exceptional. It's a statement, in fact, that stands on its own that enables us to be able to make decisions and to, I, I really feel, effectively utilize our resources abroad. And I think that's what Donald Trump is trying to do in getting NATO countries to come up to their stated agreement of 2% of GDP for every country that's participating. Am I right? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think uh, this is just, look, journalists don't really like that he's out there criticizing NATO and criticizing these countries that aren't living up to their um, their ideals and, and their stated goals. And so what we see in the media is a real hypocrisy on this because, look, Barack Obama went over to other countries. This is something that we're uh, working up for a future item uh, in 2016. And he attacked, um, the, or he said that, basically lectured Britain that they shouldn't uh, vote for Brexit and so on. And he kind of interfered in their election. And you had Boris Johnson, who was the conservative mayor of London, complain about that. And what we saw is that there were networks like ABC that, you know, silenced crickets because they, they did not see that as controversial, yet uh, now we have Donald Trump going over to Britain and saying these things and talking about NATO, and it's suddenly very controversial. So we really want to point that out, that it's, it's a total double standard about what they think is controversial from our presidents when they're going abroad. Uh, yeah, so, and one that I, I've had an editor, an actual editor of a major newspaper tell me that I was uh, facilitating lies that were unsubstantiated when I asserted that the Obama administration attempted and really spent money to meddle in. And so the Obama administration was behind it, but they used an NGO that was operating and doing, you know, kind of like 501c4 work, but not really in Israel. And they yep. were doing ads and all kinds of get out the vote efforts for Bibi Netanyahu's opponent. And, and the, the, animus from Barack Obama towards Bibi Netanyahu is legendary. So there's no need to, like, I, I just don't even tolerate that kind of talk. Oh, he liked him. No, he didn't. He hated him. And he right. actually spent money, not tax dollars, but NGO money in Israel to try to unseat Bibi Netanyahu. Liberals never acknowledged that, but it happened. And they didn't have a problem with it because they hated Bibi too. Right. Yeah, I know. That's. I mean, that's a great example. Uh, Israel, uh, England, this president wasn't really shy about trying to go after uh, uh, 
of foreign leaders that he didn't particularly like or were conservative or whatever, and kind of weigh in on other countries' elections or other countries' initiatives. Again, with with the Brexit thing, uh, they said afterwards that there were a lot of people who were kind of on the fence 50-50, and then Obama kind of came in and told them what to do, and they resented it. He may have tipped it over um, to Brexit actually happening because it was a pretty close vote. <laughs> so, yeah, you put that together with Israel, and it, it really is kind of shocking their, how selective they are with uh, what is okay for our presidents to do and not do as far as uh, you know, overseas uh, countries. I'm telling you. I mean, if just those two examples alone, I just want acknowledgement. I don't need anyone to condemn it or to tell me how they feel about it. Just acknowledge that Barack Obama did that stuff and then talk about what Donald Trump is doing, which coincidentally, President Trump at NATO was not taking actions or making statements to impact other countries' electoral processes. He was only talking about their obligations to NATO, and he has every right to do so when America's spending dwarfs the next, I think, six or seven countries combined, and they still don't spend as much as we do, and we're spending more than the 2%. So, and I know our economy is outsized, and they probably feel like, well, you can afford it, but that's not the point. The point isn't what we can afford. The point is what they agreed to do, and Germany could contribute much more. They have the GDP. you know, Their GDP is large enough that their contribution, if it were 2%, it would be much larger, but they're just not giving it, which is crazy. I, I just can't understand why we would allow that any longer, which is why Donald Trump is talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, this is it is certainly reflecting of you in the country, and I think that's, like I said earlier, that's what they don't understand. They they, they have a kind of New York, uh, D.C. liberal attitude, and, and, and that's, that's also why they didn't see uh, there was any possibility of Donald Trump being elected president. <laughs> yeah, I watched that little compilation video the other day and giggled until my eyes streamed tears. I still love those compilation videos of their sorrow from election night. You know what? Thank you so much, Scott Whitlock, uh, Associate Editor for Newsbusters, for joining the program today. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll be back with Hour 2 right after this. Keep your kids' ears safe. We're coming in hot. <laughs>